From the Cross to the Grave Pontius Pilate asked the centurion to command an escort of guards around Jesus to take him to Calvary, or Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. One of the centurion's men put the beam on Jesus' bleeding shoulder as they left the yard and went into the crowded street. The already large crowd continued to grow. Some of them followers and friends, others bitter enemies, and yet others who were just confused and angry. Jesus staggered and buckled under the weight of the beam, but he continued to drag it behind him. It was the custom to write a description of the crime committed on a clay plate and fix it to the top of the cross. Pontius Pilate had written an inscription that read, The King of the Jews. An angry voice called out above the crowd, Who wrote that stupid inscription? One of the temple priests shouted back, It should say, He said he was King of the Jews. Pilate stepped forward. I wrote that inscription and it stays as it is. A few paces further on, Jesus staggered again, but this time fell headlong to the ground. Some women rushed forward to help him, and the centurion recognised Mary as she tried to reach out and help his son, and he was touched with compassion for her. He could see blood flowing freely from Jesus now, and he knew that he had to keep him on his feet. He must not let Jesus die here on the street. A burly lumbering man, who by the look of his clothing was visiting from some other region, kept close by Jesus as he stumbled forward. And the man balked now and again, as if to reach out and grasp hold of the beam, only to pull back. The centurion called out to the man, You, help him, he's too weak to carry that on his own. The man from Cyrene leapt forward and took the beam. The peace that surged through his heart overcame the strain of the heavy burden as he strode on into endless time, that man from Cyrene. The trek to Calvary, with its frequent stops, took just under an hour from the time the centurion picked Jesus up in the yard. The process of crucifixion had begun, but it would take many more hours on Calvary for Jesus to die. John saw Mary walking falteringly up an incline with her companions and he went over and helped her. She saw him coming and turning, she reached her hand out for him to help her up the slope. Mary then asked John to stay close by her and he assured her that he would. John didn't know where the others were, he just knew that they were hanging back from the crowd a little and like them, he did not comprehend the fullness of what Jesus actually wanted to achieve. Their beloved leader, whom they didn't fully know how to follow. As John and Mary reached the flat terrain at the top of Calvary, they could hear the dull click of hammers beating against metal, bone and timber, mingled with the muffled sound of pain. Two other criminals were already hanging on crosses either side of the hole where Jesus' pole was to be fixed. But these two men were tied to their crosses, not nailed. Jesus was finally hoisted up and then the pole was crudely dumped into the hole prepared for it. And some time was spent securing its placement so that it stood erect and stable in the rocky ground. A range of utterances rushed from the mouths of people standing watching when the cross fell into place 
and when the nails tugged on the body they were pinned into. Some of the sounds were stifled cries of shock and dismay, while others were more like startled yells of alarm. But overriding these noises was the swelling chance of taunts and slogans coming from the crowd. Then the priests and the leaders of the Jews joined in the chant. You are pretty good at saving others, but you can't even save yourself. If you are the promised one, our Messiah, then come down from that cross and prove it to us. Weren't you going to pull down our temple and rebuild it again in three days? Well, why not get yourself down from that cross? John winced when he heard Jesus splutter as a soldier tried to push a sponge of sour wine and myrrh into his mouth. Jesus turned his face aside and refused the swab. Centurion ordered the soldier away and the man joined the other soldiers who were throwing dice to see who was going to keep Jesus' robe. Dust was spitting into people's faces on this strangest of days and gusts of wind blew as storm clouds raced faster than usual across the sky causing a flickering of sunshine and deep shadow. As Jesus hung there, the criminals beside him were weakening, groaning in their pain, when one of them turned to Jesus. He had earlier on joined the choir of obscenity, picking up the ugly chant with gusto. He now wanted to have his last few words of bravado heard in this dark prison of life and death that he'd made for himself. They're telling you to get yourself down, but how about us? That would be a real miracle. Even I would believe you. He was delighted with the impression this made on the crowd as they clapped and cheered him. But the man on the other side shouted at him angrily, Are you mad? Don't you even fear God? Don't you know who this is? We deserve to be here, but he doesn't. He has never done a wrong thing. He then turned to Jesus and said, Lord, will you remember me when you are in your mighty kingdom? Jesus turned his head and looked at him with love and said, Today you are coming home with me to paradise. John put his arm around Mary's shoulders as she looked on, with tears rolling down her cheeks and a countenance numbed from all expression. John tried to shield Mary from watching, but she pulled away from him. She remembered tending this little body when Jesus was a baby, that life that was part of her life. It was then that Jesus looked down at his mother standing next to John. He spoke to her through parched lips. Mother, let him be your son. His head then turned towards John. Mary looked at John and clung onto his arm, and Jesus said, Son, let her be your mother. John stood with her and watched her son's life draining from him. As they stood shielding their faces from the biting dusts that came in bursts and shielding their eyes from the intermittent dazzle of the sun, they were astonished to see the sun dim and the dazzle begin to become a weak gleam. High noon surrendered to a deep darkness which remained for three full hours. Darkness took over that day in those last hours and put a stop to some things. Shouts of bravado that just moments ago would have roused bold echoes now hung hollow in the still air. 
and those mockers that had stood close to the action at the foot of the cross now slid back into the crowd. Lucifer was watching from the headquarters of darkness above, waiting impatiently to hurl darkness at the one who was the sum of all goodness and light upon the earth. His darkness would have to wait its turn in the gloom for three more hours. Even the carrion crows and the ravens hung in the air, queuing up to eat, because it was a tradition to leave the bodies hanging on the crosses to rot. Lucifer was exhilarated with the absolute certainty of this impending triumph, and he desperately wanted to close this chapter, shut the book, and throw it onto the vast heap of his destruction. His plan was to attack the mind of Jesus, that place, the mind, in all of humanity, which he had chosen as his battleground. He would attempt to wrench all hope from his heart and plunge him into despair, where he assumed that Jesus would have no way back into his hope or his faith, let alone his love. And there were angels suspended within this pall of sadness that surrounded the desolation below, as heaven waited in eternity, and three hours of darkness passed on earth. Then Lucifer shot himself like a dart into the one that hung between two criminals on a lonely plateau of the place of the skull. The gigantic spirit of Jesus absorbed the full impact of Satan as all hell's hateful fury hit him. And as every vile thing ever done by countless millions of crippled hearts down through the ages and for the ages to come assailed his being. Thunder cracked and the earth began to shake. The magnitude of this kind of collision, the sum of all sin hitting the sum of all innocence, shakes all created things. A swirling sea of fear clawed at Jesus and sought to pull him under, but he hoisted his faith above the fear with absolute trust in his Father's love. His great spirit swallowed every vile accusation that Satan hurled at him and he took them all into himself and locked them safely within his vault of perfect love. He owned it all. He had become the reservoir of all evil in one moment of time, yet he was completely innocent of any one wrong deed. So he rallied his strength once more, but another missile of horror careened into him more powerfully and more deadly than anything before, sweeping over him and submerging him into an impotence and a cancelling of all hope. It was black and fathomless, nothingness. It was like annihilation. This was the cup that he told his father he would accept, but he did not know it would be like this. He called out to his father, 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 why have you forsaken me? The source of this horrific thought was not Father God, but darkness had assailed the human heart of Jesus the son of man, of the lineage of David. And in an instant, Jesus knew the answer to his question. He had not been forsaken by his father, but in his humanity, he had experienced forsakenness for a moment so that no living soul from this time on would ever have to feel forsaken by God again because of their human weakness. He was actually living out the prophetic fulfillment of the first verse of Psalm 22, spoken by David. From this first verse, and through many of the next 19 verses, 
David prophesied the agony of Jesus as son of man upon the cross with such utterances as, and we pick it up in verse 7, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then we see within the agony of the Son of Man the resurgent faith of the Son of God declaring in the following verses from verse 19 in Psalm 22 But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You are my help. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or forsaken the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. So as he hung there, He embraced the tragic weakness of humanity and touched the feelings of forsakenness for every human soul throughout all ages. The vast bank of love that filled heaven filled his heart and went out to a beloved humanity. He looked at the mocking faces standing around the cross and he loved them. He sent his voice into a waiting heaven and cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He had done it. It was finished. The plan of salvation could now be put into effect. Jesus had something more to say, but his throat felt parched and he wanted to speak with strength. I'm thirsty, he croaked out. The centurion, who was ever there on duty, called the soldier over, who had shoved the sponge in Jesus' face earlier. Give him the wine sponge, he ordered. The soldier jumped to the command and put the sponge up on a pole to Jesus, who could now say loudly and clearly, what had to be said in his last moments. Father, into your hands I now offer my spirit. Then in one last gasp he shouted loudly for all about him to hear, It is finished. Then he died. And he and we were placed securely in the Father's loving hands. Who brought about the death of Jesus? Was it Jesus, his father, the Jews, the Romans, our sin. All of these played very significant parts and there are scriptures for each one of these roles. But it was finally Jesus. 
In John 10, verse 15, Jesus said, And I lay down my life for the sheep. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. And then in John chapter 12, when Jesus was speaking to those around him, he said, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. So Jesus was that grain, that seed. He went into the ground that what would come up would be resurrection life. And you and I, in our faith, can be the fruit of that, living in the power of his resurrection. At the moment of his death, the cosmos convulsed. An earthquake tore a searing gash into the mountainside and people were toppled off their feet. Rocks split apart and the graves and tombs on a nearby hill cracked open. People ran in fear from the place, but they didn't know where to go. At that moment, there were priests in the temple about to sacrifice the Passover lamb. At the very moment that the knife pierced the sacrificial animal, the priests were thrown off their feet by the earthquake. The temple shook as huge stones fell from the parapets, and the great veil in the temple proper, which separated the place of God's presence from the rest of the temple, was lightning torn from top to bottom. The priests fled in panic as tempests swirled through the city. Lucifer's dark mind was being assaulted by a force he had not felt before. It was a desperate feeling of failure and futility. What was going wrong? Jesus was dying with a magnificent hope, not a dark and dreadful despair. The offering of Jesus' spirit to Father God had released a tangible power into the universe. Lucifer turned to the three dark archons who were always accompanying him and shouted to them, Let's get out of here. Something's gone wrong. He tried to flee back into the darkness, but a huge bolt of lightning from the throne room gathered him up and catapulted him downwards. He was travelling face down at a furious speed, and for a split second he thought he saw a burning lake beneath him. It struck him with horror, and he believed he must have imagined it. He was turned on his back and drawn up with the same speed into the darkness above and then turned back onto his face as he found himself again being plummeted downwards. The carrion crows were in for a disappointment that day. They were not to know that the next day was the Sabbath and that it was against temple law for dead bodies to be left hanging on a holy day. So all the criminals had to be dead before sundown and taken off their crosses. The two criminals who were tied to their crosses were still a long way from death. So Centurion had his men break their legs that they would die quickly. The Centurion then had the task of ascertaining if Jesus was indeed dead. He called over one of his guards. Give me a lance, he commanded. He took the shaft and instructed the guard on how to plunge it into Jesus' body, under his heart, where the pericardial sac would have amassed his body fluids if he had expired. Water gushed out 
and the centurion knew the day's work was done. He knew that this man was indeed the Son of God. Pilate had received a report that Jesus was dead, but he wanted to confirm the certainty of this from the centurion, whom he knew was there at that time. This was because Pilate had been told that someone from Arimathea, a man called Joseph, was making arrangements for the burial. The centurion confirmed all this and that also this Joseph was a very wealthy man and wanted Jesus buried in his own tomb that had just been hewn out in a prestigious place in Jerusalem, practically in the temple itself. He told Pilate that some women followers had a shroud prepared and anointing oils and spices. Pilate asked if Jesus had to be clubbed to death and the centurion said no and explained that we had to club the others, the ones who were tired, but not Jesus who was nailed and explained that it was hardly surprising after the beating he was given. He told Pilate that Jesus died without them breaking one bone of his body. Early the next day, Pontius Pilate received a visit from the leaders of the temple priests and lawgivers. They were anxious that the followers of Jesus might conspire to take his body from the tomb and try and fabricate a story that he had been resurrected because they had heard that he'd said he would come back to life after three days. They insisted that guards be placed at the tomb to prevent this from happening. Pilate advised them to appoint their own temple guards at the tomb and they agreed to this. So we now go from the cross to the grave. The Prince of Darkness now realised that this man's body, which had been destroyed on Calvary, had contained no fault or sin and therefore could no longer be kept captive in this lower world. Jesus again recalled what had been written in the Psalms, You will not let my soul rest in the grave. You will not let your Holy One see destruction. Psalm 16, verse 10. As Jesus hung on the cross and offered his spirit to his Father, he felt his spirit being lifted up above his body. From there he saw the scene on Calvary and all the people standing around, still looking at his dead body hanging on the cross. And he saw the centurion call for the lance. He also saw the bolt of lightning and Lucifer being caught in it and hurled downwards. He then began to travel downwards himself and he knew he was on a mission of great purpose. Below him was a place called Paradise and next to Paradise was a place called Hades. There is an account in Luke 16 of the rich man dining at his table and the poor beggar Lazarus asking for crumbs. And the rich man ended up in Hades and he died. And Lazarus was in paradise in the arms of Abraham. Jesus descended to these places. Paradise was where there were millions of souls who had been waiting for him from the beginning of time. These had lived their lives on earth in hope. Many of them guided by the commandments through Moses, but many simply by a good conscience. They were locked away from eternity till eternity would now come to get them. He would also visit Hades, the grave, the prison of lost hope. Lucifer had thought that all he had to do was get Jesus killed as a human being and Jesus would then be forever locked away from human life and from God life. 
When darkness entered our world at the fall of man, human beings began to live spiritually separated in their minds from the life of God. You read that in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. So Lucifer had laid claim to the ownership of physical death and spiritual separation of every human being. From that time of separation, the prince of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, held sway over the minds of men. That's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. But death and spiritual separation could not demand payment for something it did not own. It did not own the perfection of the sinless life of the very virtue of God resident in Jesus' body. The moment Jesus died, the cosmic law of sin and death was being overturned to make way for a new cosmic law to soon come into effect, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. This would be the new law of life for humanity, joined as one spirit to God's spirit, a new creation life for a people who would live by faith and not by sight, not in the false self with its mindset of separation, but living as the true self in the spirit with a conscious mindset of oneness with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us into your new creation reality. To be continued.